Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Morning, everybody. You Labor Day loyalists, the people who are here. Thank you guys for being here. I appreciate it. Um, I hope you're enjoying your Labor Day weekend. Uh, welcome to CCF again. Um, I am Nate Komar. I am one of the staff members here. Um, and I'm very excited that you guys are here. Um, I, as is customary, especially first sermon of the year, I'm going to trip over this. I know it. Um, we'd like to show pictures of our family. Um, and so here's a couple pictures of my family. Um, I picked these. Uh, that one actually just a screenshot from a video that I took. Um, my parents and my brother and I and Julie are in Tampa. My dad's like a, a part-time scout for the Tampa Bay Rays. He loves baseball. He loves the Rays. Uh, we went to a game and they were playing the Cardinals. They happened to be playing the Cardinals in Tampa. And uh, the Rays won on a walk-off home run in the ninth inning, and my dad was so happy. And Clayton, being a Cardinals fan, uh, was not. He was clearly, that was in the shock. That's my dad, just so elated. Um, it, was, it was awesome. Also, you see that woman between my parents' head? Like that woman right back there? She worked at Tampa. I found out she was my elementary school nurse. That's so weird. Small world, right? Isn't that so strange? Um, yeah, there she is. She's in the picture. She's always, she's actually in every picture we've ever taken. She's always in the background. Um, there's my wife, Julie. Uh, we are in the depths of Mordor there. Not actually, we're in, uh, uh, like an old lava lake. We got to go to Hawaii this last summer. It was really awesome. Um, she's also back there. There she is. Um, I also want to point out, uh, some very, very good friends of ours, Bob and Debbie. No derf, they're back there. Um, we love them so much. They've uh, become very dear friends over the years, so um, they're an extension of our family as well. Uh, these are just very random pictures. That was a manta ray that we saw when we were in Hawaii. It was really awesome. I just happened to see these. And that was the shoe that I cut my foot with with the axe. There it is. That's the evidence. It was there. Oh, gee whiz. Uh, okay. Uh, then, actually, there is one more person who is an honorary member of my family. Um, there he was at my wedding. That's Jim Carrey as the Grinch. Um, I don't have a Jim Car I don't have a Grinch reference in the sermon itself, but I know, isn't that sad? But I had to include him somehow. So there you go. There he was at my wedding. If you were there, you may not have seen him, um, but that's okay. Um, okay. So if you are joining us for uh, the first time this semester, welcome. Um, again, we're glad you're here. You're entering into a sermon series centering on Isaiah and the Minor Prophets with some student testimonies mixed in. Good job, Joel, last Wednesday. Thank you. Uh, last Sunday, Reed gave us an intro to the prophets, instructing us that the prophets are not some fortune-telling Zoltar-like characters sitting in a canvas tent with a crystal ball, spouting off foreboding omens from a distance. Instead, they are spokespeople for God existing within the culture of those they are speaking to, and, and while some of the prophetic words they give do concern the future, they, are very much, they very much have a mind and a message for the present. 
So today we're jumping into the Minor Prophets, our first one of the semester. So um, here we have Obadiah, or Jacob and Esau, the sequel, or God is greater than the Orc army, which is greater than Helm's Deep, or the Day of Distress, or the Prodigal dot 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 brother, perhaps. Um, as mentioned earlier, uh, there's 12 Minor Prophets, actually. In our Bibles, they're written as 12 separate little books. Um, but interestingly enough, in the original assembled Hebrew text, whenever it was assembled, all 12 were part of one single scroll. Um, today, we're looking at the shortest chunk of that scroll and the shortest book in the Bible for that matter. Um, it's only 21 verses long. Uh, I ordered this little uh, commentary because we had the whole set uh, downstairs in the library for the Old Testament, except this one. For some reason, it wasn't there. I was like, oh, crap, I really want this. So I ordered it from Amazon, got the you know, two-day shipping, whatever. Um, and then this whole book, which is like almost, you know, it's like 250 pages, um, this tiny little section here that I'm holding up right there, paperclip, that's it. That's all there is for Obadiah. Um, and most of that is just the text itself. So thanks a lot, John Goldingay. Um, really didn't help me out. Uh, but that's fine. Um, my choice in Obadiah was also strategic. Nearly everyone has to pick a specific chunk um, of their text to read. Knowing myself and my paralyzingly indecisive nature, um, Leah Deeker actually gave me a decision maker one time. It's so bad. Um, I sidestepped that task and picked a book that only has 21 verses. So um, without further ado, let's just jump into it. Um, it was also very short-sighted and didn't actually put the text in front of me, so I'm going to read it here. Um, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by the slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress." Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. 
For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. There you go. We just read a whole book of the Bible. Well done. Um, dang, Obadiah, tell us how you really feel. Ransacking, pillaging, slaughtering. Reed wasn't kidding when he said there would be some tough words this semester. But I think one of the more interesting and unique features of this short book is not necessarily what is said, but who it is said to and about. As you will notice as we proceed through the rest of the minor prophets this semester, um, most are written about uh, Israel or Judah. They, they kind of had a separation at one point, so Israel being the northern kingdom and Judah the southern. Most of the prophets are concerned with them. The vast majority of Obadiah, however, um, concerns the nation of Edom, or Edom, a, closer, a close neighbor of Israel slash Judah just to their south slash southeast. Um, I have a map up here. So you can see there's like the division, the kingdom of Israel um, and the kingdom of Judah. That's like all Israel. They had a division at one point. Just um, Most of Edom um, and what it's talking about in Obadiah is concerning the kingdom of Judah, uh, but still basically Israel. Um, so you can see Edom down there, down just south um, of Judah. I would venture to guess that Obadiah wrote much more than 21 verses in his lifetime. And yet it was this section of verses that was purposely chosen to be part of the Minor Prophets scroll. Of potentially everything written by Obadiah, a message concerning Edom was chosen, but why? Perhaps it was because Judah and Edom are more than just neighbors. They are, in fact, family. To further understand this family relationship, we need to go way back to the book of Genesis, back to the beginning. Um, there was a guy named Isaac who had twin sons. Anybody know their names? Gave it to you in the title slide. Jacob and Esau, good job everybody. There you go, you did it. Um, the younger of the two, although often said first, uh, is Jacob. You may or may not remember that at some point Jacob's name is changed to Israel, um, and he becomes the namesake of the nation of Israel, the father of the nation of Israel. There's quite a bit to his story, but that's for another time. The older brother, Esau, is kind of like a strange combination between Cooper Manning and Bill Buckner. Does anybody know who either one of those people are? <laughs> Cooper Manning is the much lesser known brother of Eli and Peyton, and Bill Buckner is known, uh, he's a guy, the Mets won this World Series, by the way, I'm a big Mets fan, they won in 1986. Bill Buckner made an error that everyone says cost the Red Sox the World Series. There's a lot more to it than that, come on. Um, but he's remembered for his mistake. So I think Esau is like a weird combination between them. He's overshadowed by the fame of his brother and remembered primarily for a mistake he made. Nevertheless, Esau eventually became the father slash patriarch of the, of the nation of Edom. 
He even himself became known as Edom. Um, they're kind of interchangeable. To be clear, just so we're clear as I go forward, Esau, known by the name Edom, um, and the nation that stemmed from him was also Edom. Jacob's name became Israel. The nation that stemmed from him is also Israel or Judah. Okay, to ensure that we're all on the same page, I think it is worth a review of their story. Um, so Isaac's wife, Rebecca, gives birth to two sons. The first, Esau. The second, right on his heels, literally, um, was Jacob. Although they were seemingly born just seconds apart, it might as well have been years in the Jewish culture. The firstborn son was known as something called the Behor. A Behor is a mantle that's, that's entailed greater blessing and greater responsibility. When given the inheritance following the father's death, the Behor received a double portion with the idea that they were also the one in charge of taking, on, of taking care of and carrying on the father's household. It was a big deal and a big title, um, and it's one that Jacob seemed to care a lot, care a lot more about uh, than his brother Esau. I can imagine Esau and Jacob as exhibiting the classic brother-against-brother rivalry. Esau was the, the beefy, boisterous, bearded outdoorsman who enjoyed hunting. He was his father's favorite. Um, he was the quote-unquote man's man, the Ron Swanson, if you will. Jacob, on the other hand, was the quieter mama's boy, the Rebecca's favorite, who spent most of his time around the house. I imagine Esau as a sort of Thor-like character, uh, impulsive, sure of himself, and desiring to show his strength outwardly. Jacob was a bit more like Loki, relying on his cunning and ambition to get the upper hand. He's an opportunist, biding his time until the right moment arrives. Certainly, I took some creative liberties in describing them. I made some overgeneralizations. Yes, I did. But I think that helps at least paint a picture um, and set the scene for the famous story that happens years later. One day, Esau comes into the house after a hunting trip, exhausted and famished. Jacob just happens to be making um, what must have been one mean pot of red lentil stew. Um, this whole scene actually reminds me of an episode of Drake and Josh. If you want to hear about it, I'll tell you in sermon discussion. It really fits. It really does. Uh, but it, it's, it's too far off traffic, off topic. Come to sermon discussion. Um, Esau coming in so hungry, famished, he needs satiated as soon as possible. Impul so he impulsively sells Jacob his birthright. The big deal, the double portion, the responsibility for a bowl of soup. It's like saying, that's a nice house, mom and dad, but dang, that McChicken sure does look tasty. <laughs> but Jacob wasn't finished. Uh, when his father Isaac was near death, he and Rebekah teamed up to deceive Isaac into giving Jacob the official blessing of the firstborn, leaving the secondary blessing for Esau. It would be like sneakily altering the last will and testament for your parents just before they died to give you the better inheritance. With the blessing in his pocket, which again is a much bigger deal than I think we can comprehend, Jacob flees out of fear of his brother Esau. And rightfully so. Um, in Genesis 27:41, Esau says this, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So yeah, it's pretty typical brotherly strife. Um, but can you blame Esau? I mean, he has the right to be angry. Sure, he was a bit careless. But Jacob knew what he was doing the entire time. 
He cheated his brother in a big way. The next few segments of the story are focused on Jacob. He both outfoxes and gets outfoxed by his uncle Laban a few times. He gets married twice. He acquires a good deal of wealth. Um, again, I'm really oversimplifying this. Check out the story of Jacob. It's very interesting. There's a lot to it, um, but we just don't have time. The last bit I want to discuss of their story occurs about 20 years later. So Jacob's been with Laban for about 20 years at this point. Um, when he finally leaves his uncle's land, he still fears the wrath of his brother Esau. After 20 years, he's still just petrified. Petrified. That's, that's a pun, but I'll, you'll see it later. Um, he sends a message to Esau basically asking for his approval. Like one of those like meek text, text messages you send when you think someone is mad at you and you're just trying to get a gauge for the situation. Esau responds by setting out to meet Jacob, bringing 400 men with him. Jacob assumes the worst, naturally. He starts dividing up his camp, assembles a massive peace offering, and even puts his servants in the front to act as some sort of meat shield, I guess. I don't know. Um, I, can imagine Jacob, I can imagine Jacob approaching. His heart is pounding as he sees his brother in the distance. The brother who wanted to kill him so many years ago, I'm sure he considers running away. Maybe that would be easier, but it's too late at this point. Um, Jacob reaches his brother and bows down to him seven times, and he braces for the worst. But surprisingly, Jacob's assumptions were wrong. Instead, Esau runs to his brother, embraces him, and kisses him. Granted, I, I do think the 20 years in between shouldn't be overlooked, but his hatred has seemingly vanished, and the story of the two brothers has a happy ending for the moment. Obviously, most of the Hebrew Bible uh, focuses on the story of Israel, um, following the people of Jacob, the people of Israel. So we don't get a great deal of insights into the story of the Edomites, the Cooper Mannings. If the passage of Obadiah gives you any clue, however, it's that most of the glimpses we do get at the nation of, Edo East of Edom aren't exactly flattering. In Numbers 20, the people of Israel, led by Moses, have just left captivity in Egypt. And they've been in captivity for a while. They're on their way to the promised land. Um, and they come to the land of Edom. Uh, and they say this. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met. Skipping down a little bit. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. They just want to walk through. But Edom says no. Israel pleaded again, saying they would pay for any water their livestock consumed. But once again, Edom denied their entry and even sent an army to the border for good measure. Big brother Esau was asserting his dominance over little brother Jacob. Maybe they had the image of Jacob plotting over a pot of red lentil stew in their brains as they watched the Israels back away. From there, the skirmishes seemed rather regular. There are numerous stories of battles between Israel and Edom through the years. The relationship between the two was rocky at best. And with that, we come to our little tiny book of Obadiah. As mentioned earlier, the prophet Obadiah does not hold any punches when it comes to calling out Edom. Sure, the language is intense, but I cannot get this brotherly image out of my mind as I read it. 
The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and, you, and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So the Edomites lived in the mountains just southeast of Judah. It's called Mount Seir, that's what it was often called. Um, and so there's a picture of it up here. Uh, so it's like these structures are literally like built into the mountains. Um, this is a picture of the city of Petra, petrified Petra. That's, that's the pun there. It's back. Um, and so that was part of the Edomites, um, the Idumeans later. Uh, so literally their fortresses were like built into the mountain. Um, the terrain also just made it very difficult for attacking enemies to even get to the cities of Edom let alone attack their fortresses that were literally carved into mountains. It was like Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Rings. Um, they were impenetrable. Uh, the people of Edom had confidence that their dwellings in the cleft of the rock would protect them. Much like their patriarch Esau, they took pride in their strength. But Edom apparently didn't just possess physical strength. They weren't all brawn. Um, they seemed to have some brains as well. Um, Obadiah says, in that, in that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, a city in Edom, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. It's the classic older sibling disease with the most common symptom being pride in the wisdom and strength held over the younger sibling. All of these accusations against Edom surely exhibit that pride comes before the fall, and they have their own weight to them. But in the sibling analogy, these attitudes check out as belonging to the stereotypical obnoxious older brother that you see in TV shows and movies. At this point, however, the story takes a turn that violates every convention we see in that typical sibling motif. So why is the pronouncement of judgment actually coming? What is the main reason Edom is sentenced to destruction? Obadiah tells us very plainly. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in their day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Judah's in trouble. The nation of Babylon, most likely, uh, is ransacking the nation of Judah, slaughtering a number of its people while taking others into captivity. If this were a movie, Edom would come to rescue Judah. Esau would rescue Jacob. They may have had their squabbles with Judah, but when the chips were down, they would come through. It's the old, nobody messes with my little brother but me sort of thing. But alas, it's not a movie. In response, not only do the people of Edom stand aloof while the Babylonians come in and ransack their brothers in Judah, but they participate in the affair taking some of Judah's land for themselves, capturing and turning over those who survived or escaped from the Babylonians. It would be like the people of Judah coming to the mountains of Edom 
asking for refuge and then being turned away. And then when the Babylonians, who are hot on their heels, um, come in pursuit, the Edomites could choose to point them the wrong direction and say they went that way. But instead, they point the pursuers directly toward um, the fleeing survivors. If we remember back to Reed's sermon, we can recognize that the prophet Obadiah is not just a passive onlooker. He's a part of the people of Judah, repeatedly bullied and picked on by its brother nation. He was certainly frustrated before, certainly frustrated before, but this was the last straw. Obadiah and God through him are understandably angry and heartbroken by the betrayal of Edom. That's a lot of backstory. Uh, but through the time spent exploring this relationship between Esau and Jacob, Edom and Israel, I cannot help but think of my own brother. Um, so here's a picture of us. Um, this is more recent. This was when we were in Tampa, a little before Clayton's heart was broken by the walk-off home run. Um, and this is a few years ago. I had my shoulder surgery. Clayton came to visit. He was still in high school at the time. Um, we're nine years apart. Uh, and I'm sure partly due to the fact, due to that age difference, we rarely ever fight, really. But that doesn't mean we always agree. In fact, either one of us will tell you that we're very different. For one, Clayton would build a football team around Joe Burrow, and I, well, I think this. <laughs> this is what I think. So um, I would start with Patrick Mahomes, obviously. Um, Clayton is the one in board games who takes the Stephanie Bungalumfrey why not strategy. Um, I'm much more pensive. Usually Stephanie is yelling at me to hurry up instead. Clayton will buy an expensive pair of shoes because he just likes them. I will buy an expensive pair of shoes because they can increase my running efficiency by up to 4%. Clayton is decisive and direct. I feel paralyzed by the prospect of making decisions, and I beat around the bush in tough conversations. Clayton sees things a bit more in black and white, whereas I see more of a gradient. We understand those differences, but they certainly can create an underlying tension at times. Maybe you guys can relate. Sometimes I do feel like Esau or Edom. My pride makes it harder to lose to Clayton than almost anyone else even though I did come to the realization a few years ago that he is now faster and stronger than I am. It's fine. I take pride in the extra nine years of wisdom I have gained, and sometimes I want to take him by the shoulders and shake him until he sees things the way that I do. To be honest, I've even felt a bit of bitterness for the different levels of responsibility that just naturally occur in childhoods of siblings with a large disparity in age. I still don't think I'd trade it for some soup. And yet, despite all of that, I can't imagine coming to the point where Clayton is in need and I just stand aside, or worse, I gloat in the day of his misfortune. But I know it happens. I've seen it. Perhaps it is not in such an extreme manner as we see in Obadiah, but I've seen siblings come to the point where they couldn't care less about the lives of one another. A once strong bond torn down by a simmering tension that was allowed to build over time until it's an out-of-control rolling boil. Or until the water just completely evaporates, leaving behind just a small, flaky deposit of apathy and contempt. The only evidence that a relationship even existed. 
And surely this extends beyond just siblings. Um, what about estranged parents or grandparents, aunts or uncles or cousins? And I know I'm not the only one who has seen this. Where have you seen the tensions in your family or circles of your friends? Maybe the tension has slowly built over time, or maybe it was the fallout from one single event. Maybe one of the people involved in the tension is you. Is there someone close to you that just really grinds your gears? Maybe you just can't understand why, the, why they do things the way they do. Why do they keep making the same mistake? If they could just see the way you see things, then they could fix the problem. Maybe they wronged you or you wronged them, which makes it even harder. Who makes the first move, especially when you're both probably making assumptions about what the other person is thinking? I know I have been guilty of that. Maybe it's just easier to do nothing and pretend they don't exist, or better yet, maybe something will, someone or something will teach them a lesson and they'll finally wake up. They'll get what they deserve. It seems as though the relationships that should be the closest are the ones most susceptible to this kind of hurt and betrayal. I think we hear it in the voice of Obadiah, and I think we see it in our lives if we open our eyes to do so. To take it one step further, Obadiah focuses on Edom, but toward the end of his message, he shifts his focus to all nations. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. In this case, I see Edom as a symbolic representation of all nations and relationships. It's bigger than just Clayton and me, or Jacob and Esau, or Judah and Edom. It extends outward. When we take our pride, when we take pride in our own strength, our own wisdom, and ignore those in need in the process, we're no better than Edom. There's one more tidbit that really caught my attention as I read through Obadiah. You may have noticed it too. Um, in the middle of the book, Ob Obadiah repeatedly uses some form of the phrase, in the day of their distress, or ruin, or calamity, seven times to be exact. There's seven of them, they're highlighted up there, you can see them. In my mind, there has to be a reason. Why do you say this over and over again in such a short period of time? Um, I'm no Marty with his chiasms, or uh, I'm no Hebrew concordance, nor did I find this anywhere on the internet, so how much credence is there? I don't know, but I find it intriguing. Do you remember that part of the Jacob and Esau story when Jacob fearfully goes to meet Esau after being with his uncle for 20, for 20 years? When Jacob approaches Esau... He bows seven times, possibly out of respect or asking for mercy. At that point, Esau embraces him. Esau and Jacob then part ways. Not long after, in Genesis 35, God instructs Jacob to go to Bethel and build an altar to, quote, the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob tells his household that they're going to build an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has gone with me wherever I have gone. The wording is strikingly similar. In Genesis, Jacob bows seven times in the day of his distress to Esau, who embraces his brother, shedding the hatred that he once held. In Obadiah, the prophet mentions the day of his distress, or calamity, or ruin, seven times. But in each case, 
Obadiah did the opposite. I wonder if there is some callback to the way in which Edom, and by extension all nations, was called to respond, not with aloofness or contempt, but instead with a warm embrace. And the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that Jesus may have actually had the story of Jacob and Esau um, in the back of his mind when he told the parable of the prodigal son. After all, the language is quite similar between the two stories as well. Jacob, knowing he has wronged his brother, returns to him expecting the worst. Instead, Esau, who, by the way, had every right to be angry in the wake of Jacob's continually deceptive ways, quote, ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him. In the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son returns to his father, hoping just to be treated as a servant. Instead, the father, who had every right to be angry and owed him nothing, quote, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I'm also confident Jesus knew the writings in the scroll of Obadiah and the prideful, ruthless response of Edom to the plight of Judah. Jesus' entire ministry was centered around humbly sacrificing and lifting up those in distress to the point of dying for everyone, even his enemies. In the story of the prodigal son, I imagine Jesus is holding up the Genesis story of a humble and forgiving Edom against the arrogant, vengeful Edom in Obadiah and saying, man, Edom had it right the first time. It's the classic Jesus upside-down kingdom where the, where the older sibling power is traded for humility. Thus, if we are to be followers of Jesus, then may we follow the example of this Edom slash Esau that embraces his brother Jacob. May we not hide in the clefts of our rocks with our defenses up, but rather humble ourselves by reaching out to those close to us that maybe we haven't talked to in years because we didn't agree with how they handled a certain situation, or they didn't vote the same way we did. Maybe we, we, may we not become so sure of our own wisdom that we cannot see when we are mistaken. May we look at the face of those who may have every right, who have deceived us or insulted us intentionally or unintentionally. And although we may have every right to be angry, we choose to embrace them. And when calamity strikes, may we not just take, it, take in those who have been kind to us, but also those who, might, who some might say deserved it. May we recognize humans as humans made in the image of God and worthy of our recognition. And just as Obadiah's message extends to all nations, may this humble posture extend outward from our immediate circles. May we as a body of CCF not turn a blind eye to those on campus that are in the day of their distress, feeling isolated or alone. May we as a church remember our story and not quarrel so fervently over our little differences. Obadiah's words may be harsh and coarse, but his message is one that persists throughout the biblical narrative. Pride and strife may lead to destruction, but peace forgiveness, humility, and sometimes a nice hug lead to life. Um, let's pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon.
where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.